Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Now if you remember at the end of day 7, last week as we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, at the end of all that, God declares that everything was good. That means that there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no sin or death. God's creation was absolutely perfect after he had created it. And you remember that as we talked about that, one of the things we learned was that even before that, even before God created anything, he already had in mind his redemptive plan because Ephesians 1 tells us that even before the creation of the world, the foundation of the world, he chose us in him for all kinds of things, redemption, salvation, forgiveness, inheritance. And so all that was in place long before God had created. And it was in anticipation of what we're going to see today. Genesis chapter 3, I would argue, is probably the darkest day in human history. I mean, there's a lot of dark stuff in the Bible. Things that happened. You look at Israel's history and some of the stuff that went on. But Genesis chapter 3 describes the darkest day in human history. Where God's perfect creation becomes less than perfect. In fact, ultimately, that perfect relationship that God had between not just mankind, Adam and Eve, but also his creation, was in many respects destroyed. It was devastated. We're going to look at that today, but we're going to look at it just as we did Genesis 1 and 2 from the perspective of where do we see the gospel in that. So when we look at that devastating event that happened in Genesis chapter 3, we call it the fall. Where do we see the gospel in that? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to break this down. We talked about how we'll spend some time analyzing the text, maybe some of the finer details to answer some questions you might have. But bigger than that, we're going to sort of take it and become more philosophical about how does the gospel be seen within that. And so today the outline primarily is we're going to first begin by looking at Satan's attack on mankind because that's where it all began. Then we're going to look at where the origin of sin and its consequences came from and we're going to look at that. But then we're going to end it on a third part which is in the midst of all that where do we see the gospel reflected in Genesis 3? Because believe it or not it's there. I had a discussion yesterday with my sister about how so many within evangelical circles today are not only trying to unhitch from the Old Testament, saying there's not much value in the Old Testament, but there's actually a movement now to say that the Old Testament is not messianic, which is mind-numbing to me, but it is. And we see that all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to see it today as well. So we're going to go ahead and do that. So turn to Genesis chapter 3 with me. We're going to read just the first five verses to start with. We'll be doing some jumping around, so keep your finger in Genesis chapter 3, but then we'll be looking at some other passages. And as always, sometimes I'll just read them to you and make the citation. You don't have to turn there. Other times I'll ask you to turn there. So, Genesis chapter 3, first five verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the first thing I want to start with, this attack begins by the enemy, Satan. And the thing is, we don't really know a whole lot about the origin of Satan. 
I'm going to give you just a summary here. We're not going to go into a lot of verses. But I'm going to be real frank and say one of the trouble or one of the problems we have when we look at Satan and his origins is the Bible isn't really super clear or direct and specific about him. There are verses that are used within Christianity as allusions to, but it's not like we can turn to a specific chapter and verse that says specifically, this is where Satan came from, this is what happened. Instead, it's a number of other passages that allude to historical events that we also believe are somewhat looking back and give allusions to Satan's origins and and what happened. And so I'm just going to give you a quick summary. I'm going to have in my notes some of the Bible verses um, that you can look up. So if you want to go download the notes, you can see some of the verses that are alluded to. But primarily, let me just summarize it for you. We know that Satan was created as as a sinless heavenly being. Now, many people think that he's an angel and he's a fallen angel, but the Bible never describes him as an angel. However, he is described by Ezekiel as a cherub. So, the best way to describe it is, we know that Satan was a heavenly host. Heaven is made up of not just God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, or God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, as, as heavenly, but we also have angelic beings. We have actual angels, but we have cherubs. We have seraphim and cherubim as well. So, there are different heavenly hosts, and we don't have a real good grip or handle on exactly what those are, who they were, but there are a variety of these heavenly hosts. And what we know about Satan is that he was a heavenly host. Um, Some believe that he was a very high-ranking heavenly host. There's some allusions to that in the scriptures. So we know that. Now the question is, when did he come into being? The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, if we believe that God created everything, as the scriptures suggest, in those six literal days, it means likely that the heavenly hosts were created during that six-day period of creation. We don't know on what day, because it's not listed there. But Satan is a created being. He's not eternal, co-eternal with God. He doesn't go back in eternity. So he was created at some point. He was created just like the other angels, sinless, but with free will, if you will. And so we know that that's kind of his origins, that he started, he was created by God at some point as a heavenly host. The scriptures also allude to the fact that he fell to earth. Jesus himself said, when, they, when he sent the disciples out to preach, and they came back and they talked about all that they had seen, and he said, I saw, he- I saw Satan fall from heaven. That's probably a reference to sort of what was happening at that time too, but probably an allusion to what he saw. The book of Revelation seems to describe Satan as well being kicked out of heaven. We know that when we get into the book of Job, that when the angels or the sons of God, angels all present themselves before God, God asks Satan, where where have you been? He's like, I've been down roaming the earth, going to and fro. So what we know of Satan is heavenly host, created by God to be good, chose to rebel, was in some respects kicked out of heaven, sent to earth, um, and he roams the earth to seek and to destroy to do damage to God's people. So those are the things that, again, we draw from various passages throughout the Old Testament to give us an idea of who he was. He is the enemy of God's people. The scriptures tell us that as well. So he seeks to destroy. He seeks to harm. That's his role and that's his purpose. And so that's really what we know about him. Now we know that in the garden here, when it talks about the serpent, it doesn't mention Satan here specifically. It calls him the serpent. calls him crafty. The reason we know this is Satan here is because in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it refers to Satan as the serpent of old. A reference back to Genesis chapter 3. And so we know that who we see here in Genesis chapter 3 in the serpent is Satan. Now, 
my suspicion is this. He either described himself, or he either either, um, presented himself as a serpent, or he possessed a serpent. It's the most famous, or the most common word for snake. That's why we treat it as a snake. Okay? So he either took the form of a snake, or he possessed a snake. Now you might say, can demons possess animals? Well, Jesus sent them off into the pigs, and they ran off the cliff. So we know it's possible. So, again, he either showed up and appeared in the garden, made himself look like a snake, or he possessed a snake. We don't know which is the more accurate description of that, but it's probably either one. And so that's what we see here. Satan came down, or came to, presented himself to Eve, and began to talk. And there's three primary things that he uses here as he tries to attack God's creation. Doubt, denial, and disparagement. Look at what he actually does here. He begins by doubting or causing Eve to doubt God's word. If you look at that, he says, Indeed, meaning, really? Has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So it begins with trying to cause Eve to doubt what God had really said. Now why that's important is... This text tells us that God gave the command to Adam and means that Adam relayed that command to Eve. And so that might have created some seed of doubt in her mind. Huh. Well, you know, Adam, I didn't hear God say it, you know. And so he's trying to play on that. He's trying to cause some type of denial in her mind. And when he does that, you notice that he starts with really asking that question. Really, really, has, has God really said that? Do you think we ever see that today? Does the Bible really say that? Yeah. Happens all the time, doesn't it? You notice that he also does something else here. He kind of twists what God says. You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Satan knew what God had said. But he really poses the question, has God really said, and oh, by the way, did he, did he say all of the trees? Well, no, he didn't. And we see Eve's response there. She knew what God had said. And people get all hung up on the fact that she says, you shall not eat from it or touch it. And they go, see, Eve was lying there. Well, no, that would have been the first sin. See, Eve hasn't sinned yet. So she wasn't lying there. What was she doing? Adam may have relayed that to her. Adam may have said, God said don't eat from it. I'm going to tell you not to touch it. You ever do that with your kids? You sort of set up boundaries? Why? So they can't get themselves in trouble. And so my guess is that Adam probably told her, look, you know what, the best thing to do here, since God said don't eat, let's not even touch it. Let's set up some rules. And so that's what she repeated to Satan. Because she's not accused of sin yet, so we know that she's not lying. Okay? Sin doesn't come until a little bit later here. But it's interesting how Satan kind of plays on that a little bit. Twist God's word a little bit. Because he could have said, hey, did God really say don't eat from that one tree? But instead he kind of, did God really say don't eat from any tree? So he tries to cause denial by posing that question, but also twisting what God said. He continues denying God's word by saying, well, I'm sorry, causing doubt, not denial, but causing doubt. He tries to cause that doubt in her mind. Did God really say... Did he really say not to do this or not to do that? He causes that, that doubt. He then moves on to denial. Surely you won't die. He comes right out in the front with God, does he not? That's a direct attack on what God had said. No, yeah, sure, God might have said you'll die, but you're, you're not going to die. Do we see that today in our world? People deny the consequences of what the scriptures teach? Very similar. He was calling God a liar. Even if God did say it, you can't trust him. Can't trust what God says. He moves on to disparagement now. Notice what he does in verse 5. 
For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's some truth to that because that's exactly what happens. But what Satan is really doing here is he's disparaging God. He's saying, <laughs> really, the reason God doesn't want you to eat that eat from that tree is he doesn't want you to be like him. He's hiding something from you. He doesn't want the best for you. So it's a way to disparage God. And so he, he causes doubt. God didn't really say that, did he? He goes on to denial. Well, you can't trust him because, no, he said you'll die, but you're not going to die. And then he moves on to disparagement. By the way, you can't even trust him because he's hiding something from you. He doesn't want you to experience what he has. He knows everything. You can have that. But he just doesn't want you to have that. So go ahead, eat from that tree, and you can be just like God. And so he uses doubt and denial and disparagement. I see those same things in our culture and society today. The constant attacks on God's word and who he is. We see doubt, we see denial, we see disparagement of God. What we see here in Genesis 3 is just the beginning of Satan's relentless attack on God's people. I want you to turn to Job chapter 1. This is something that we will see throughout all of history, past, present, and even now into the future. Satan will not stop what he started in the garden until he's dealt with in the end of the book of Revelation. But if you turn to Job chapter 1, Starting in verse 1, we're just going to read through the first 11 verses or so. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless. He was upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a lot of servants. That man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job was a righteous man, serving the Lord, had the Lord's favor. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now we know that that wasn't just him hanging out on earth. We know from the rest of the scriptures that he was up to no good. And that's why the Lord does what he does next. He knew that Satan was looking for those to tempt and those to try down on the earth. That's the roaming that he was doing. The Lord knew that. And so he says, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? In other words, God isn't here saying, oh, Satan was just minding his own business. I'll give him something to do. Why don't you go ahead and try Job? No, he's saying, no, Satan was roaming the earth already, looking for those to tempt and to try, because that's Satan's work. That's what he does. We find that out in the rest of the scriptures. He roamed the earth to seek and to destroy. And the Lord knew that. And he says, well, okay, if that's what you're about, have you thought about Job over here? For there was no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all he does on every side? In other words, come on, really, Job, you want me to look at him? 
The only reason Job worships you is because you've made it really good for him. You put a hedge of protection around him. There's no harm that befalls him. He's got a great life. He's rich. He's wealthy. He's got no concerns. Nothing, Lord. Come on. Of course he worships you. You've given him a good life. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. Meaning, go ahead, remove all your protection, God. Take away all that goodness. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. What basically he did was he said, Okay, Job, or okay, Satan, I'll go ahead. I'll take away my protection from Job for a short time here. You can take everything outside of himself. You cannot harm him personally. But you can take his possessions. You can do whatever you want. And we'll see how Job responds. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them and presented himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. In other words, now Satan goes back. He had done the best that he could to get Job to curse the Lord by harming his possessions and everything else. And he's still worshiping the Lord. And so the Lord once again says, You didn't prove your case, Satan. He's not cursing me. And so Satan says, verse 4, Skin for skin. Yes, all that man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. And so he essentially tells Satan, Okay, I'll let you now bring about calamity in Job's life personally, sickness, disease, and other things. He's still not going to curse me. And if you've studied the book of Job, you know that that's exactly the way it works. Even though he was harmed and his family was taken, he still did not curse the Lord. He wondered, he struggled sometimes, but he didn't curse the Lord. Satan had not won the battle. But what we see here, and the reason I turn to this, was because this is Satan's motive. He wasn't done in the garden. He may have been able to harm and destroy what happened in the garden, but he's not done. He continues this pattern, and he did it with Job, and we see this elsewhere in the Scriptures. Jesus told his disciples that Satan is a thief who comes to seek and steal and destroy. That's John 10.10. That's his motive. Simon Peter, Jesus warned him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, And you, once you have been turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's Luke chapter 22. So Jesus even warned Peter, Satan's coming after you, Peter. He wants to sift you like wheat. Peter then turned around and warned his own readers. 1 Peter chapter 5, just listen. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to destroy. But resist him firm in your faith. Turn to Romans, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. Even the Apostle Paul warned us about this enemy. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6. It's a passage many of you are familiar with. It's where we get the concept of the armor of God from. Ephesians chapter 6. Go to verse 10. Paul says this. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm, what? Against the schemes, the plans of the devil himself. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the, the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the, sta- the saints. What's Paul saying? The enemy is out to destroy us. He's, he seeks to destroy That's what he does. And he did it in the garden. He has continued it. And ultimately it's not until we see him thrown into the lake of fire. In fact, when we get into the book of Revelation, we see that even for a period of a thousand years, he's locked up in the abyss. That's when Christ reigns for a thousand years. His millennial kingdom fulfills all of his promises to Israel. But he's let out at the very end. And Dustin and I talked about this. I'm like, you know, the dude is in the abyss for a thousand years. And the first thing when he gets out... He gathers the armies of the earth and tries to attack Christ, who basically snaps his fingers and wipes him out. He's done. He's not going to play the game anymore. But that's the first thing he does after being locked up for a thousand years. It's kind of like, you know, grounding your kid to the bedroom, you know? And you kind of think that maybe when they get out, they're going, I don't want to go back there again. And so they behave themselves for a little while until their brain gets a little numb and then they go back to their old behavior. No, he comes right, which means for a thousand years he's schemed. What am I going to do the minute I get out of this place? That is the enemy. That's what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. It was just the beginning, but it continues. What's our takeaway from this? We see that from the beginning and throughout all of human history, Satan has been trying to destroy the relationship between God, man, and even his creation. When he saw Adam and Eve in the garden, it was perfect. Perfect harmony with God. God was walking in the garden, we're told. And Satan set out to destroy that by tempting Eve. I would argue that in some respects he succeeded, right? He broke that relationship. He broke the relationship between God and his creation. Now that doesn't mean he won because he may have won the battle but he certainly isn't going to win the war. But nonetheless, that's what he did. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll just read this to you, verses 3 and 4. He does that by blinding the eyes. By blinding the eyes of the unsaved. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote, And even if our gospel is veiled, meaning if people don't quite see it, accept it, understand it, even if it is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, the unsaved. Why? In whose case the God of this world has blinded the eyes, or I'm sorry, blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds the minds of the unsaved. He also does it, we're told, by deceiving and trying to destroy the body of Christ, the church. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. In fact, the last message in Second Timothy, or in 1 Timothy, we've been given this sacred gift and it's our job to guard it. That's the gospel. It's our job as a church to guard that, 
to protect it, to share it. But you see, Satan knows that if he can destroy the church, then he impacts that gospel. And so, 1 Timothy chapter 4, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, which means Satan isn't just blinding the minds of the unsaved, he's working within the church to attack the church by what? Seeding it with deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons trying to get the church off the rails. We've talked about this time and time again, what we see happening in evangelical circles with the amount of false teaching that takes place in churches today. That's Satan at work. Why? He's trying to derail God's plan. He not, it wasn't enough that he broke that relationship in the garden. He's now trying to prevent God from fixing the relationship that was broken in the garden. Now, as we learned last week, that wasn't God's initial plan anyway. It wasn't just the garden. God's plan was that we might become partakers of the divine nature, that he might live within us, that we might become his temple, that we may live eternally with him for that reason. It's better than going back to the garden. But see, Satan had to learn that in the garden. I would imagine it probably dawned on him, huh, okay. I broke it, thought I won, but God's got this plan to now fix that and make it better. So now, he's attacking the church and attacking the world with all of his schemes. That explains to us all the opposition we see to the gospel. Why is it that Satan in the world hates the church, hates believers, hates Jesus Christ, hates God's word? Because Satan is constantly at work trying to do that. So it explains to us the opposition we face to the gospel. Now we're going to move on and look at the origin of sin and the devastating consequences. Look back at Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 19. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband also with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you, and you will eat from the plant of the field. But by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and for dust or and to dust you will return. You know, according to first John chapter two, verse sixteen, there are I won't say forms of temptation, but three different avenues of temptation. Anybody remember that passage? It says that it's 
lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It gives us, you can look at every form of temptation, every sin, and it's one of those three. It's either the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. What's funny, in a weird way, not a funny ha-ha way, Satan, I'm sorry, Eve felt play, or prey to all three of those. We see those right here. Go back to verse 6. Notice it says that she looked at the tree and she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. It satisfies that desire. It looks good. I think I'd like to taste that. It's like me and wits. You know? I know I shouldn't always eat it, but first thing I do is I drag Grandma and my sister Jeannie to wits last night. You know? And we have further plans to go to Johnson sometime this week. It's just the way it works. And I have two quarts in the freezer at home, so it just doesn't end. The lust of the flesh satisfies the flesh. She looked at the tree and she went, hmm, that looks kind of good. It says then she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. It was pretty. That's the lust of the eyes. says that she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's the lust of the, or I'm sorry, the pride of life. That'll make me wise. Remember, probably in the back of her mind, yeah, I could be just like God. He knows good. I could do that too. And so we see her fall prey to all three of these, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Eve ultimately succumbs to it. Sins against God by violating that one command. Kind of goes back to my FedEx story the other week. You had one job. One job. And she blew it. Giving in to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Now, the other thing you'll notice here is, we were told this elsewhere, that Eve's sin was really attributed to her being deceived, led astray by Satan. Adam's sin is not tied to deception, but rather because he chose to listen to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God. He made her a priority over the Lord's command. And so we see that both of them ultimately sinned. They succumbed to temptation. The consequences of their sin then are threefold. They're immediate, they're deadly, and they were universal. Let's go ahead and look at that. The consequences of their sin were immediate. As soon as they sinned, we're told here, their eyes were opened. They began to see. They recognized good and evil. And the idea there is not so much just seeing it, but now experiencing it, living in it. They had truly understood evil now because they had committed evil. So now, God didn't need to experience evil to know evil because it's opposite his character. But Adam and Eve began to experience evil and now knew both good and and evil as a result of their sin. But it says that as soon as they sinned, their eyes were open. They realized that they were naked. It says that they began to experience shame. They were naked beforehand, but it wasn't a problem. Now it is. It brought about shame for the first time in their lives. Now we don't know when this happened. I would argue that sin probably happened very quickly. And the reason I do that is that the scriptures describe it because we don't know how was it a day you know was this on day 8 this happened or day 15 we're not really sure but I would argue this that if Adam and Eve had engaged in sexual relations because they were perfect she would have likely become pregnant immediately which would have been before sin which means she doesn't pass sin down to her child so I would argue that it probably happened very quickly before they were ever able to conceive but they're feeling shame for the first time says they sowed fig leaves for themselves to try to cover themselves up. They experienced fear for the first time. And you know what's really tragic about this? You notice that that fear came about with the one that created them. 
Here's this perfect, loving, gracious God that had walked, we're told, in the garden with Adam and Eve. And now they're hiding in the bushes. Why? Because Adam says, I heard, verse 10, the sound of you in the garden. Something he had heard before, but this time he says, and I was afraid because I was naked. To be afraid of the one who created you that knows you better than anybody else. And yet, that first experience of fear came fear of God. It says that we see the first bit of blame shifting here. You notice when he talks to Eve, she blames the serpent. When he talks to Adam, he blames his wife. And kind of blames God. Well, you know, you did give her to me, God. You know? It wasn't overt. It was a little subtle. You know? Well, God, it was the woman you gave me. (coughs) So we see blame shifting happen for the first time. Dishonesty. Instead of Eve saying, yeah, dude, man, I blew it. You said not to eat, and I did it. Yeah, there's truth here that Satan deceived me, but you know what? I take responsibility for it. You don't hear that. It's just, he deceived me. Same thing with Adam. Adam could have said, you know, you're right, Lord. I listened to my wife. I should listen to you. But it's like, oh, you kind of gave her to me. She deceived me, or she you know, gave it to me, and I ate. You know, it's kind of your fault, God, because you put her here. You know? But the reality of this it is that their consequences of their sin were immediate. Immediate. Move on to the consequence of their sin was deadly. Two ways this was deadly, physical and spiritual. Notice the first thing here. On Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Jump all the way down there. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. You will return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. That's talking about physical death there. Now that was not immediate, but it was deadly. We know that this came to pass because um, Adam lived for 930 years. But he finally bit the dust. Turned into dust. Went back to the earth from which the Lord had taken him. Certainly deadly consequence, wasn't it? Every human being after Adam, with the exception of Enoch who was taken to be with the Lord, and those who get raptured by the Lord, Everybody's going to experience the same thing he did. They're going to return to dust. So there's a physical consequence, a physical deadly consequence to sin. The second is a spiritual consequence to sin. You jump back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, and we read this. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now that says, in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. We know that that was spiritual death. It wasn't immediate physical death, but it was an immediate spiritual death the relationship between God and man was now severed and we see that in the way that Adam and Eve respond to the Lord Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says that in as much as it is appointed for man to die once and then what to face the judgment there will be spiritual consequences because of sin and one of those spiritual consequences is spiritual death and so we see that the consequences were both immediate but also deadly spiritually and physically. The last thing, the consequences of sin are universal. They're universal. Now what I mean by universal here is that all of God's creation suffers as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. All of his creation. Mankind suffers. Every descendant of Adam and Eve are going to face the same consequences with the exception of the fair, you know, like I said, those who may be raptured, fortunate to be here when Christ returns. But Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19, again, if we look at that, it says that the woman's going to suffer uh, pain in childbirth. Go on to verse 17. It says that Adam, as he works the ground, is going to bring up thorns and thistles and 
all by sweat. How many of you love working in a garden and watching the rabbits eat your plants or the bugs eat your stuff? You know, this is just a reality, folks. How many women look forward to giving birth and going, I can't wait to experience what an amazing thing to be in labor, to have the recovery. So every human descendant pays the price, even creation itself. Look at verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of life which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it. The ground itself, God's creation, has been cursed as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says that all of creation was subjected to futility. When we look around the world today and we see the stuff that happens, this is not the world as the Lord created it. Many things still function the way they're supposed to, but many things do not. Everything is broken. There is death and disease, not just in humans, but everywhere. I showed my mom and my sister a little tiny tree we have next to our house. We had to rip out our beautiful, lush green tree when we sprung a leak leaning in the house. And So now we've got this little tiny thing, but even the side of it there, a bunch of brown leaves, you know. We have three of these um, little bird's nest spruce out front. I mean, I noticed a couple of weeks ago, one of them's got all these dead branches on it now. All of God's creation suffers as a result of what Adam and Eve did. And so we have these consequences of sin that were immediate, they were deadly, and they were universal. What's our takeaway from that? When we look around the world today and we see all the pain and the suffering, the sickness, the disease, the death, the natural disasters, all of that is a result of sin. And what that actually tells us is that it's a spiritual thing. You know, the, uh, the world and their view on evolution and other things doesn't see it that way. In fact, some within the church don't really see it that way. They see death and disease even before sin. It doesn't make sense. The scriptures tell us that everything we see is a result of sin. It's a spiritual thing, which means that only a spiritual fix can work. When we think about Jesus himself, when the angel came to Joseph and Mary and told them that Mary would bear the Son of God. Listen to what he said. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. That's why Jesus came. To save people from sin. Not from, well, he came to save you from sickness. He came to save you from disease. Sometimes he does that. But he came to save you from sin. Why? Because sin was the problem. That's what's at the heart of all of this. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, John chapter 1, verse 29, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. That is the reason Christ came. He didn't come here to fix this world in the sense that, let's just make it a better place. There are many within Christianity that believe that we can redeem culture and society and just return it to the garden. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't say, you know, I came here so that the United States would be awesome. (laughs) No, he came to solve the sin issue because that's what started it all. And because that's what started it all, that's what has to be fixed. So we already begin to see the gospel play out in the fall. Now these these verses all focus on the redemption of mankind primarily, but all of God's creation, it says, are redeemed because of Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 19. We misunderstand the scriptures if we only thought Jesus came 
to fix the relationship between man and God. But see, remember, all of God's creation was cursed. And Jesus even came to fix that. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of God's creation will be set free from the corruption that happened at the garden. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. The very end of the story. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making what? All things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. So what Jesus Christ came to accomplish was not just fixing the broken relationship between us and God, but all of creation. It will all be made new, all because of Christ. And so we have Jesus, the first creator, also becomes the second, meaning he recreates, creates a new heavens, a new earth, redeems all of his creation. So we see these consequences of sin and we begin to see now the glimpse of the gospel that Jesus Christ was sent to redeem not only man, but all of creation. Now, let's get into our last part here. I'm going to look at three specific ways that we see the gospel foreshadowed in this Genesis 3 passage. The first one, if you look back at verse 15. Look back at 3.15. You see this, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, or bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, you've heard Dustin and I refer to this particular verse as something called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And what that means is that it is often interpreted here that this is a reference to Jesus Christ, the crucifixion and the resurrection, in sort of an allegorical sense. And what I mean by that is it doesn't come right out and say, hey, I'm going to send my son to squash you but rather a bit of foreshadowing. Now, not all scholars see it that way. There are some scholars who interpret this literally to mean that, oh, there's always going to be tension between man and snakes. And they see no spiritual meaning in it at all. The problem with that, though, is that as far back as we can go in Christian history, all the way back to the first and second century, there were church fathers who interpreted this ultimately as a reference to Christ, the seed of the woman. And they believe that's partly why it's in the singular here. Now this word for seed is used oftentimes in a plural sense, meaning you know, your seed, in the case of say Abraham for instance, that it's multiple descendants. But there are some who argue that 
the reason he didn't say descendants here or use other words or other language is because it isn't just a reference to the descendants of Eve but a very specific descendant of Eve a very specific seed which we would see as Christ and so I'm one who believes that this is a reference a looking forward there is a time when he will bruise you on your head and you will bruise him on the heel in other words look at the crucifixion Jesus was injured bruised if you will but he ultimately defeats Satan. I think there's theologically some support in that. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. But then look at this. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. What? To destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works, plural, of the devil. What we see exposed here in Genesis chapter 3.15 is definitely a battle, if you will, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. There will be a battle in many respects. And we see that played out in Scripture. So theologically it fits that this might be a reference to Jesus Christ. Some of the earliest church fathers believe that. I think there's another possibility as well as we look at it. I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. That's the way your English translation renders it. So when Eve has her first child, Cain, she says, I've got this child. Now, two primary ways to interpret this from a grammatical standpoint and some of your Bibles may actually have a little note of an alternate translation to this most English translations translate it exactly as I just read it I've begotten a child with the help of God meaning God has helped me have a child okay however grammatically it can also be translated as I've begotten a child the Lord not with the help of the Lord but I've begotten a child ultimately it is the Lord the question is what did Eve mean by this? It's not super clear. One of the earliest understandings of that passage we have in in church history was that it was treated as the latter. I've begotten a child, the Lord. Meaning, Eve believed that she had given birth to the seed that God promised and he was now here to destroy Satan. And she understood that he was God's son. It's difficult to prove that's the case, But, like I said, many, most church historians translated it or understood it that way. Not translated, but understood it that way. Um, Again, you can't prove it grammatically because either one of those translations grammatically is true. One of my professors in seminary um, was the first to propose that idea to me. Um, I had a conversation with a seminary buddy of mine, probably a better Hebrew scholar than I was at the time. So I reached out to him and he's like, well, that's the way that I interpret that. That Eve was saying, I've given birth to a child, the Lord. And she believed that it was the birth of the seed that would now crush the head of Satan. Again, I can't make that statement with a tremendous amount of dogma. I lean towards that myself because the way that I understand the the grammar there, there's a little word that's used there, Hebrew word et, and it can either mean with, you know, I've got a child with the help of the Lord, but more often it's simply a marker to identify this as a direct object, the Lord. It's used both ways in the 
first few chapters of Genesis. So again, grammatically can't prove it, but it's more common to see it as I begotten a child, the Lord, would be the more common way that it's used, but it doesn't make it the case. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but there's one other piece that I think lends itself to interpret it that way. Turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. Genesis 5, 29. Lemek was the father of Noah. And listen to what Noah says, or I mean, sorry, Lemek says when Noah's born. Lemek, this is verse 28, Lemek lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his son's name Noah, having, or saying this, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. He uses language there from Genesis chapter 3 in the cursing of the earth. So what Lemek is saying here is when Noah was born, it appears that Lemek was saying, here's the one that God promised in Genesis 3.15 who would bring us rest from the toil and the cursed ground. So somehow it appears that Lemek believed that Noah was a fulfillment of the promise of this seed. And where would that have come from? The only thing I can think of is it was probably passed down. And it appears that maybe generations before that were waiting for this seed of Eve's to come and to reverse the curse. And Lemek thought that maybe Noah was it. Now we know that Noah did bring rest to some degree, only through the, the ark, totally destroyed. That's kind of not the rest that Lemek was hoping for. So it's a prophecy about Noah, but not in the way Lemek intended it, but it appears that Lemek thought Noah's going to be the one. He's going to be the seed that was promised to Eve to bring us rest from the toil and the cursed ground. So my gut, and again, I can't be dogmatic about this, is that we're to understand Genesis 3.15 as a reference to a coming seed that would reverse the curse. And in doing so would be a foreshadowing of Christ. I believe Eve understood it that way. I believe that Eve probably understood it as it would be God in flesh. Probably because she would have recognized he's the only one that can fix it. The only seed that could fix this problem would have to be God himself. We know that's the case because it's Jesus. Had to be God in flesh that would die because of our sins and reverse the curse. And I, so again, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I believe that's the first place we see the gospel laid out. I think there's a reason why it's appropriate to treat it as the proto-evangelion, which is the first gospel. I believe that's why scholars in the past have seen this as the first gospel. Second thing, and I'm trying to, trying to wrap this up because I'm running short on time, but the second way that we see the gospel revealed here, I want you to look at verses 20 and 21. 20 and 21 of Genesis 3. When the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The second way that we see the gospel revealed here is it's foreshadowed in God's clothing of Adam and Eve. Now you may not have really caught that, but you notice what he made the clothing out of? Adam and Eve had covered themselves with fig leaves. It was inadequate. Not only was it small and made with stuff that would rot and deteriorate, but it only covered up a portion of their bodies. It covered up their loins. That was it. But what God did was he sacrificed animals. The first sacrifice that we see, he put to death an animal and used that to cover Adam and Eve. And it didn't just cover Adam and Eve's skin. It served as a covering for their sin. It was the first atoning sacrifice made in the Bible. And it was made by God on behalf of Adam and Eve. The word for atoning, is believed, 
has a basis in the word for covering. It covered something. And so there's this amazing word picture here that God covered Adam and Eve as a foreshadowing of the atonement sacrifices of the Old Testament that were designed to cover their sin. It required a sacrificial animal, the shedding of blood, to cover their sin, but it also is a foreshadowing of the atonement of Christ who covers our sin by his sacrificial death. I'm going to read you a passage from Dr. John Sarfati's commentary on this. Just, and he's quoting from somebody else here, but just listen to what he says. He says it better than I could. Adam and Eve had already tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, but now God gives them clothes of skin. The en- er, uh, this entails that God must have killed animals. God may very well have killed the animals in front of Adam and Eve so that they saw for the first time what physical death meant. So this was the first lesson for humanity that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. That comes right out of Hebrews. A Messianic Jewish theologian explained it this way. Physically, God clothed their nakedness but spiritually he also clothed or covered their sin by making for them the very first atonement in human history. The lesson to be learned or drawn from this is as follows. First, in order to approach God, we must have proper covering, meaning our sins have to be covered for us to be in God's presence. Second lesson is that man-made coverings are not enough. What does that mean? Our efforts aren't enough. We can't cover our own sin. So not only did God have to cover those sins, He had to be the one to do it because our own efforts to cover our own sin are not adequate. Thirdly, God Himself has to be the one who provides the covering. He had to send Jesus Christ. He, God Himself, had to die for us. Animal sacrifices weren't enough. Our own efforts aren't enough. Lastly, fourthly, the proper covering requires the shedding of blood. We know that Hebrews says that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. We see all of that right here simply by God saying he's going to make coverings for Adam and Eve. And again, it's a foreshadowing of the atonement of Jesus Christ which is the heart and soul of the gospel. We'll wrap it up with this. Finally, we see the gospel foreshadowed lastly in God's removal of Adam and Eve from the garden. Look back at verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And to the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, it'd be easy just to look at that as God's judgment, but it was actually an act of mercy and grace. We're told here that had Adam and Eve in their fallen sinful state, condemned physically to death and spiritually to death, had they at that moment reached out and taken from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in that state. There would have been no hope for redemption, no hope for salvation. They would have been condemned for all eternity in that State And what would that have done for mankind? All of mankind would have been condemned to be in that state. There would be no hope of redemption. No hope of salvation. And remember, God's plan wasn't just the garden. If it was, he could have just wiped out Adam and Eve, started over, put another couple in the garden, see if they can figure it out. But he didn't. Instead, he kicked them out of the garden to protect them from reaching out to the tree of life and confirming their sinful state for all eternity. 
So it's actually an act of mercy and grace. And we're going to see that. There's some other passages that we'll see where God does that. He intervenes in a way to protect us. The Tower of Babel, as Dustin's going to go through, is a good example of that. After the flood, they all came back together. Let's just do it again. And what does God do? He scatters them to try to put a, a, a sort of squash down their sin. They can't communicate with each other. They can't, you know, it's almost an act of mercy and grace to spread them up. Like, I'm not going to let you do that again. And so we see that here, and that's exactly what the gospel is. And so we see here that God was making it possible by removing Adam and Eve from the garden, putting them outside the garden walls, putting a cherub there to protect them, getting back in there and taking from the tree of life so that he might ultimately redeem them through his redemptive plan, the gospel. That's why the Bible tells us God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All of this happened while Adam and Eve were in the garden Sinful state, God intervened. Why? Because he loved his creation. He loved the world. And so, even here, at mankind's darkest time, we see God's truth of the gospel still being played out. Even here, like I said, in kicking him out of the garden. He still preserved the possibility to redeem us and to save us. We kind of look at it as, man, he kicked him out of the garden. Life got really tough. Yeah, it did. Why? That he might ultimately be able to redeem us and to save us. So Satan may have won the battle, but he didn't win the war because God did not abandon Adam and Eve in their sin. Immediately after their sin, he made atonement for them through an animal sacrifice as a foreshadowing of what would ultimately be required in the death of his son to be able to make atonement for their sin. So once again, as we look through parts of Genesis, we see that the gospel is foreshadowed. It wasn't just seen in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's even seen here now in Genesis chapter 3, in mankind's darkest hour. Amen?